uh, and that would be great. And I got to remember to put these back where they go. So I need to put them somewhere where I'll see them. I'll put them there. Okay. Uh, and we're going to try to finish chapter seven. Okay. Hebrews chapter seven is where we are. Uh, I am working really hard this morning not to combine messages. Some of you know pastor's gone. Like I said, he's on that trip. And so I'm preaching in the worship service this morning. And I'm doing, I don't know if other, pa Brother Townsend, you ever had this problem? You preach in Sunday school and preach in worship and you try to blend in, in your head by accident, you blend them. I'm in that point right now, and I'm trying not to blend my lessons together. I don't want to preach to you the Sunday morning service, and then you all take a nap when I'm preaching the other service. So I'm trying to keep that separate. I'm, I'm actually, in worship service, I'm trying to answer a question. Uh, I've been working lately on this idea of, uh, what's the word I want to say? Things that I don't completely understand in the scripture, and I've been trying to work through those things. And one of those things was that, how many of you remember the story, Matthew chapter 19, I think it is. How many remember the story of the rich young ruler? He came to Jesus and he said, what must I do uh, to enter the kingdom of heaven? And you, know, you remember the story. That story doesn't, for years, has not made a lot of sense to me. There's a lot of things in that story where I go, what? That doesn't make sense. And anyway, I think, I'm, I think I finally figured out the point behind the story. I mean, the real, I preached on it before. In fact, several years ago I preached on it, and now I'm, I'm going off on my message. See what I just did? You people should stop me. Hebrews chapter 7. We got down to verse 10, okay? So we're in chapter 1, verse 10. Uh, Cindy, did you get a lesson? He's right behind you. Put your hand back this side. There you go. She got tired, Rick. She put her hand down. Uh, okay. Anybody else need a lesson? You got it? Okay. So you're with me. So Hebrews chapter 7, we went through the first 10 verses and we kind of, at least in my mind, settled the issue of Melchizedek and the purpose of behind Melchizedek. Again, the whole concept to me was really straightened out when I put Melchizedek in front of Christ until, instead of Melchizedek behind Christ. That made so much more sense to me. It cleared up a lot of things. Uh, you know, it, it wasn't about him at all. It was about who Christ is and always has been, the eternal there is an eternal king priest, amen? And so once you figure that out, it kind of, kind of flows a little better. Well, when you get to the second half, uh, verse 11 through verse 25 in this chapter, now the argument begins. You kind of get a, a, a practical argument and you can get a theological argument. If that's true, it's kind of like this. If verses one through 10 are true, if Melchizedek is who we say he is, then... That's, then then what, should, what should you do, okay? And so that's what we're going to look at. If you look into those notes right at the top of that page. Oh, by the way, I forgot to mention this morning, and I wanted you to mention this uh, for you to be praying. Some of you may not know this, but uh, Wayne Henley passed away. Uh, some of you know Wayne uh, and Clara. Uh, Wayne passed away, uh, I think it was Friday night. I talked to his son-in-law yesterday. Uh, we don't have any details on the funeral. They meet tomorrow with the funeral home and all that, and then I'll give you more details on that, but likely probably going to, in all likelihood, it will be here Thursday. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but just so you know, uh, but be praying for Clara. That's, uh, uh, Wayne was always the, I don't know, most cheerful. How many of you know Wayne? You remember Wayne? That is one cheerful rascal. I mean, it didn't matter how bad off Wayne was. Wayne was cheerful. And I, uh, it's hard to, it's hard anymore to find somebody who's cheerful about anything in any situation, but a good man uh, going home to be with the Lord, have no question about his salvation. Uh, and I have no worries about him. I know where he is. Amen. Uh, I, but be, please be in prayer for, uh, for Clara and the family. Okay. Hebrews chapter 11, uh, chapter seven, verse 11. So you notice how it starts with the one word right there. If 
Okay, so if this is true, now, so what? If you're looking at your notes, top of the page, that first page, page 67 now, uh, there's your little outline, chapter seven, uh, talks about the whole concept is his priesthood is superior in order, in order to Melchizedek. We'll get to chapter eight, chapter nine, chapter 10 in a minute. So we covered, if you're looking at your notes, we covered who Melchizedek was, probably overcovered it, probably overdid it. Uh, but anyway, uh, so you can go to, go to page 69. It's page 69, Last week we talked about the historical argument. We went through that concept, so I won't go to that. So we're all the way down to the bottom of page 69. Now everybody with me now? Everybody know where we're at? Page 69, the doctrinal argument. Now I'm gonna, I'm gonna read a little bit about this, but then we're gonna, we're gonna take some looks at, uh, to get the whole doctrinal argument and to get the practical argument, you have to go through, you have to kind of touch on chapter uh, eight, nine, and 10 a little bit. And we'll do that in just a second. So get prepared to turn your Bible. The doctrinal argument. So having clearly established the historical foundations for the superiority of Melchizedek over Aaron, the writer now shows that Melchizedek is also superior from a doctrinal point of view, okay? So he uses a quotation from Psalm 110. Uh, Psalm 110, uh, by the way, he's a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. That's the verse he's talking about, verse 4, that Jesus Christ... Psalm 110, nobody questions this. In fact, you can even go to Jewish scholars. Uh, Jewish scholars will tell you that Psalm 110 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah. Now, we understand and we, we believe that the Orthodox Jews do not believe that Jesus Christ is that Messiah. I don't think there's really any question in the New Testament who he is. Uh, he is that Messiah. So when you say Psalm 110 is a prophecy about the coming Messiah, I can also say it this way, and I think I'm absolutely correct. Psalm 110 is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, right? Because he is that Messiah. And he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, okay? So you have to understand who you're talking about in Psalm 110 to understand this. So look at uh, A here. Aaron was replaced by Melchizedek. When God said uh, to Christ, said to, uh, about, it should be about Christ in Psalm 110, the order priest forever after the order of Melchizedek, he was actually setting aside the Levitical priesthood founded in Aaron. Okay, remember, remember the whole concept behind the Jews, behind the book of Hebrews. Jesus is better. New Testament Christianity is better. It is a fulfillment of Old Testament Judaism, okay? And he's trying to convince these Jews. Again, you already understand that, but you've got to understand who it's written to. So as they're convincing these Jews, he's saying this. You're, not only was Melchizedek prophesying that, but even in Psalms, David wrote that when Jesus comes, he will be a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In other words, that priesthood of Aaron's was incomplete. It never fulfilled what it really needed to do. It was, a temporary, um, it was a temporary standing between you and God. It was a temporary covering for your sins. It, didn't, it wasn't complete. It wasn't finished. But when Jesus comes, it's all done. Now think about that. So if, what he's saying to the Jews of his time, what Paul is saying to the Jews of his time when he's writing this is, that's done away with. The Levitical priesthood is no more. We don't need Levitical priests because that which is perfect has come, right? That which is, has been prophesied is here. We now have an eternal priest that will continue forever, okay? So understand it that way. Uh, go to the next page real quick. Uh, so uh, the fact that God established a new order proves that the old order of Aaron was weak and ineffective. And it's also meant that the law which, which Aaron functioned under was likewise set aside. 
We understand that, right? Everybody in here understands you're not saved by the law. Amen? You couldn't be saved. That's part of today's other message, so I have to be careful what I'm talking about. I don't want to get into the other message, but the law never saves. Number one, it can't save. You'll find out in today's message, it's impossible. The Bible actually says that. It's impossible. You cannot fulfill the whole law. So it was inadequate. The law is not there for you to be saved. What is the law there for? Yeah, the law is our schoolmaster. It's to teach us something. What is it to teach us? It's to teach us how sinful we really are, that we cannot make it. If you just took the Ten Commandments, nobody in this room, I don't care who you are. I don't have to know you. I don't have to know anything about your life. Nobody in this room has kept the Ten Commandments. Not purely. And if you take the Ten Commandments, if you just take the Ten Commandments, forget anything else about the law, just take the Ten Commandments, you add to that, uh, the add, what, what Christ add to it, it's not about just about what you do, it's about what you think and what's in your heart. Okay, I'm, I'm toast. You are too, okay? I mean, if it's about, if I ever thought about adultery or if I ever thought about murder or if I ever hated a brother, I mean, you start adding that in, I got no chance. By the way, neither do you. No one does, okay? So that was an incomplete system. And all Paul's trying to show these Jews is what you're hanging on to is incomplete. It's all been completed. It's all good now. This is so much better. Pay attention. He's trying to help them make make that switch. Okay, so look at the next statement here. The law made nothing perfect. You see that in chapter seven, verse 19. Consequently, if the law made nothing perfect, then the priesthood made nothing perfect. And the sacrifices those men offered made nothing perfect. He goes back, you can see that in chapter 10. Uh, Chapter 10, verse one says this, for the law having a shadow of good things to come, it wasn't what what was gonna save you, it was just a shadow and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. No matter how many sacrifices you offered, no matter how many times you came, no matter how many bulls or rams or turtle doves or whatever you bought, it didn't, it did not fulfill the perfection. You were, your sins were covered, but they weren't forgiven. Now they are because there is one perfect sacrifice. And he's trying to get them to see that is Jesus Christ. Again, in our society, in our Baptist church, most of you have been raised, that makes perfect sense to you. Imagine an Old Testament Jew trying to figure this out. It was a little confusing for them. So keep reading. Of course, the Hebrew word for perfect means having a perfect standing before God and has nothing to do with sinlessness. Aaron was made a priest by a carnal commandment, but Christ's priesthood functions after the power of an endless life because unlike Aaron, Christ will never die. Now, I did something this morning in my notes and and I'm gonna make you add some stuff to your notes, okay? Beside that paragraph, here's what I want you to write. I'm going to give you something beside each paragraph to write. Outside that paragraph, I put in a little box uh, 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 just outside of where it says the law made nothing perfect. I put two words. I put the word weak and then I underlined that and I put the word perfect. Okay, that's the argument. The Old Testament law, the Old Testament sacrifices were weak in that they couldn't make anything perfect. Christ is better because he can and did make everything perfect. I have, I don't know if you understand this, a lot of people don't get this. When I got saved, it is correct to say, when I got saved, Christ forgave all my sin. Everybody agree with that? Is it correct to say that? It is correct for me to say that when I got saved, Christ forgave all my sin. It is also correct to say this, that's not all of it. 
Because if Christ just forgave all my sin and I sin again, I've got a problem. See, what happened was, if you, some of you remember our study back in Romans chapter 6, actually 4 through 7, uh, we talked about imputation. What happened was simply this, Christ not only forgave my sin, but his righteousness, the very righteousness, perfect righteousness of Christ was put on my account, was imputed unto me. When God sees me, he doesn't see my sin, he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. Until he came, think of it this way, for an Old Testament Jew, when he looked in your sin, he saw your sin covered. He didn't see it just gone. He saw it covered by the blood of bulls and goats. Better that it be covered by the blood of bulls and goats or better that it be gone and see perfect righteousness of Christ. You with me? That's what he's saying here. So I put on the outside of that paragraph for me, weak, one was weak, the other was perfect. Okay, so look at the next paragraph. So Aaron was ordained by an oath. When, uh, while God acknowledged Aaron and his successors in an elaborate ceremonies described in Exodus 28 through 30. Go through that sometime. I, you don't have time to do that this morning. But go through uh, Exodus chapter 28 through 30. Wow. I mean, we're talking about the apron, the ephod. And we're talking uh, about uh, the jewels on the ephod. And we're talking about uh, the breastplate of righteousness. And we're talking about the Urim and the Thummim. And we're talking about all the things down to the pomegranates and uh, all the little things that had to be on the apron and all the things that they had to do. And it's just as, it's a lot. I mean, that is one. I don't know if you've ever studied the book of Exodus. We, we have in this class a while back. But man. That is a, everything represents something. It's a shadow of something to come. All of that, all of those little representations, everything you read, Exodus chapter 28 through Exodus chapter 30, whether it's talking about Aaron or whether it's talking about his son, all of that, every single jot and tittle of it fulfilled in Christ. That's what he's saying to these Jews, okay? So uh, we have no record of a divine oath that sealed the priesthood. There's no, I, I never even thought about that, but there's nowhere in the, uh, uh, in the Old Testament where God said, you are a priest. He said the, the men should ordain them. In other words, Christ was ordained by God, but Christ gave to men the power to ordain the priest. I, I, I'm hoping in my heart and mind, I was called by God to preach. That's what I feel like. I felt like God called me to preach. And so in a sense, that was the original ordination. But my, my actual ordination was up in Michigan City, Indiana, at Bible Baptist Church, uh, when our church voted to ordain me to the gospel ministry. Uh, and so uh, I was ordained by men. Christ's ordination is in uh, Psalm 110. Thou art a priest forever. Uh, I can say God called me to preach, but I can't really say God ordained me. There was, wouldn't that have been cool though in Michigan City when they ordained me, if they say we ordained you and you heard a voice from heaven saying, I ordained him as a pastor. Woohoo! Okay, so you see a little bit of difference there. The ordination is different. By the way, you can, uh, you can set a little box over beside that paragraph. It helps you a little bit to understand this a little better. Uh, one was ordained by, uh, one, uh, I say it this way. One was ordained by God. Uh, I should say this. One was called by God. One was God. That's the difference he's trying to make here. You understand who we're talking about. We're talking about God ordaining a man. Or God coming as the, God, the, the king priest. So one is ordained by man or one was, one was, uh, was God himself. Okay, look at uh, C here. Uh, see, Aaron and his successors died, but Christ lives forever. And he keeps giving these arguments. If you're looking at these passages over here, I have been reading from the scripture, but verse 11 uh, through 12 is where you get the first, uh, first uh, 
first part I was talking about. Now we're in verse 20. Uh, so there's a difference in the priests. Under the Levitical system, death caused the office to be filled by a parade of priests. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. But Jesus remains a deathless priest, and therefore he is an unchanging priesthood. So out beside that paragraph... I'm just trying to give you a synopsis of the whole thing. So outside that paragraph, I wrote a temporary covering or eternal forgiveness, right? So you have two things. Paul's saying that that priest was not eternal. They could only temporarily cover sin. This priest gives you eternal forgiveness, which is better. When, when you read it and you set it out like that, it seems fairly obvious what, what Paul's saying to these Jews. And most of them, a good number of those in that, those early churches finally got it. Amen. They finally went, oh, why are we hanging on to the old when we have the new? Why would we, why would we want to go back to that system when we have Christ and eternal forgiveness? Why do we want temporary covering? Uh, look at the next paragraph. The law was holy and good, but it's limited by the frailties of the flesh. Aaron's, Aaron died, his sons after him died. The priesthood was, was as good as the man and the man did not last forever. But Christ lives to die no more. He is as unchanging priesthood because he lives by the power of an endless life. He continues forever to make intercession for God's people and thus is able to save them, that is God's people, to the uttermost. Now, before I get to this, let me just say something. Am I going too fast again? I feel like I'm really flying. Uh, I'm a little anxious to get going here, but... Uh, how many of you ever heard this phrase? God saves from the guttermost to the uttermost. Anybody heard that phrase? That is not a bad phrase. It's taken mainly from this passage. But I think the idea is that God saves from the worst, the worst people and God, to, no matter how good you are, you need to be saved. No matter how bad you are, you can be saved, right? And if you take it in that concept, it's a good phrase. But that's really not what that verse means. So look at your notes again. Go back to the notes again. Uh, he continues forever to make intercession for God's people, and that is a, he is able to save them, God's people, to the uttermost. When we, we often apply verse 25 to the lost, but its main application is to the saved, to whom Christ intercedes, intercedes daily. He saves from the uttermost or forevermore. He continue, he, it's a continual thing. Because Christ doesn't die, you are eternally Secure. If your, if your security was in Aaron, right, Aaron dies. If your security was in Levi, well, Levi dies. If your security was in Samuel or Samuel's sons, boy, I hope it wasn't in Samuel's sons. Those are some bad boys. Uh, uh, if it was, then, but now our security, the reason we don't have to worry, the reason that it's better, we don't have a priest that's going to die. We have an eternal priest, okay? And so that's, what, that's the point here. He saves to the uttermost forevermore, and any sinner can be forgiven. But the point here is that those whom he saved are saved forever for eternity, from, from, for the uttermost forever, who was able to save them to the uttermost that come unto him by seeing he ever liveth and make his intercession for them. It's not talking about the unsaved there. We apply that to the unsaved. He's able to save to the uttermost. But it's talking about the saved. In other words, he's able to save us forever. Because he is a king and priest who has existed forever and will continue to exist forever. His sacrifice is good forever. In the Old Testament, how long does the sacrifice last? Well, until you sinned again, right? And then you had to bring another bull or another uh, ram or whatever. And it just continually was over and over and over. Whereas in the New Testament, once for all. 
Okay, so everybody still with me? Okay, so now look at the next paragraph. Because his priesthood is untransferable or intransmittable, uh, he is able to save to the uttermost all those that come to him by God. Jesus Christ is able to save the uttermost, that is, entirely and to eternity, yet future. There's no need for a believer to fear the loss of salvation. Furthermore, the child of God need not fear circumstances and protecting problems. We We have a God, we have a priest who not only who not only can save us, but understands our need for saving, and after we're saved, understands how we, uh, how we suffer in the flesh, understands our temptations. He was tempted in all ways like we are, and yet without sin. He understands it better than Aaron understood it. He understands it better than Levi understood it. He understands it better than any Old Testament priest. That's who he is. And all he's saying, again, all chapter 7 is saying, real simple, Jesus is the better priest. Amen? Now, he uses a lot of arguments and a lot of things, but he comes to it. Uh, if you want to write something on the bottom of that, I, I wrote on outside of that paragraph, sons of Aaron and Levi, and then I put a line, son of God. <laughs> That's better. Amen? It's pretty simple. Uh, go to the next paragraph, uh, next page, uh, page 71, okay? Totally unlike the priest of the Levitical system, he does not need to offer sacrifice for his own sin. Why not? Because he's without sin. I don't know if you, under, you understand this, but before the priests could offer sacrifice for you, they had to offer sacrifice for themselves. Well, which is better, a priest who has sinned or a priest who's never sinned? You, you understand where he's going here? He makes it very clear. So outside of that, I wrote imperfect human or perfect God. Which is better? I, I am your pastor, but t- trust me, you, you don't want me, you, you don't want me to be the one who's sacrificing for you. That's not a good plan. I'd have to get a lot of things straight uh, before that ever happened. And so the Old Testament priests. Uh, so go down to the next paragraph, okay? So that's the, not in bold. The very fact that the Old Testament sacrifices were repeated over and over was proof that they were not capable of removing sin. They had to be repeated because sin remained. And therefore the writer says they were merely a remembrance of sin every year, over and over and over. By contrast, Jesus' sacrifice, I love this, was once and for all. His sacrifice will never be repeated because his death was sufficient to cover all sin. So the point that Paul makes here is to, uh, to compare the effectiveness of Christ's sacrifice under the new covenant with the ineffectiveness of the sacrifices under the old covenant. Now, I know some of you are sitting here and you're looking at me and you're like, boy, this last three weeks have been really technical and doctrinal. I, I understand that. Uh, and I understand for you, it's not that you get it. Understand it had to be that way. It had to be this tedious for the Jews to get it. It, They had to go through every little jot and tittle so they understand, listen, you don't need to go back to Judaism. That's done. It's over. It has been fulfilled completely in our our Messiah and the Lord Jesus Christ. And because it has, it's not just good. It is so much better. I've said this before and I've said it in this class. I am so thankful I am a New Testament Christian and not an Old Testament Christian. I mean that. I thank God the time I was born in because Old Testament Christianity, Old Testament Judaism, that was difficult. I mean, you really, you really, really, really had a lot of effort into it. New Testament Christianity, in a sense, easier to get saved, but really, really, really difficult to live, isn't it? I don't know about you. I struggle with the world, the flesh and the devil. I really do. It's a battle. It is a daily battle for me. So the battle hasn't changed that much, uh, but the process, the, 
uh, can I say it this way? The religion of it. The ordinance of it. So much better. Amen? And that's all Paul's trying to get them to understand. Uh, look at the last little thing here. Christ's sacrifice was totally sufficient once for all. By the way, two things you're going to see. Two things you're going to see as we go through the next few chapters. I'll, I'll give you a quick uh, rundown on them. Number one, you're going to hear the word once a lot. Okay. Uh, in fact, look at it real quick. I think I've listened. Yeah. Look at chapter seven. Look at verse 27. Chapter seven, verse 27. He says this, who needeth not daily, talking about Christ, who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sin and then for the people's. For this he did. And you see the word there? For this he did once when he offered up himself. That, that, it, there's no other sacrifice necessary. Amen. Uh, look at chapter 9. Go to chapter 9 and look at verse 12. We'll, we'll get through all this in our next study. Uh, neither, by the blood of bulls and neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Once. You're going to continue to see this thing. Go to chapter tw uh, 9, verse 25. Nor yet that he should offer himself often as a high priest entered into the holy place every year without blood of others. For then they must have offered since the foundation of the world. But now, once in the end of the world, he hath appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Keep reading. And as it is appointed to men once to die, but after this is judgment, so Christ once offered to bear the sins of many, and unto them that look for him shall he appear the second time without sin to salvation. Look at chapter 6, verse 10. And burnt, uh, 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 chapter 6, I'm sorry, chapter 10, verse 6. And burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast no pleasure. Then said I, Lo, I come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do thy will, O God. And when he said, and when he said, above when he said, Sacrifice and offerings and burnt offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure in them which are offered by the law. They, they didn't complete anything, they covered it. Verse 9, and though he said, lo, he said, I come to do thy will, O God, he taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Again, this is the message those Jews need to hear. The first has been fulfilled in the second. And look at verse 10, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. See the phrase again? Once for all, you'll see it again there in verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies made a footstool for by one offering, he perfected forever those that are sanctified. And over and over, you're going to hear this theme. One, 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 once, once, once. It is done. It is finished. By the way, where have you heard that phrase? It is finished. Yeah, on the cross. You see what he's saying? This is done up until this it was not done. Up into this, all those sacrifices were necessary to cover sin until the perfect sacrifice came, the lamb without spot and blemish, the son of God. When that was done, this was done away with. And if you're trying to figure out, well, what is Paul trying to tell the Hebrews? That's simply it. By the way, there's another word. There's another word. It's not in your notes. I, I, was, I had a few minutes this morning. Uh, and there's another word. How about this word? Perfect. You're going to see this word a lot. Uh, go, back to, uh, go back to chapter 5. Chapter 5, real, real quick. Chapter 5, verse 9 says this. Uh, and being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. Uh, we're talking about Jesus Christ. He was perfect. Okay. Uh, look again in chapter 7, verse 11. Chapter 7, verse 11. If therefore perfection were by the Levit Levitical priesthood, if the priest could get you perfect, then why would Jesus need to come? You ever think about that? If that system worked, let me, let me say it this way. Here, can I say it this way? Paul's kind of looking at you saying, hey, if that system came, why did you need a Messiah? Why did he need to die? 
when you think, when, when he says that, if I, I think if I was an Old Testament, if I was clean on Old Testament Judaism in that day, and he said that, I think my mind would go, oh, good question, right? If, if that made, uh, if that made, if the Levitical priesthood made it perfect for under the people, for under it, the people received the law, what further need was there of another priest that should rise after the order of Melchizedek and not be called after the order of Aaron? Why, why wasn't he just another priest? Why wasn't he in the temple? Why? Because that's all done. It's, he, he, he is the perfect sacrifice. Uh, look at cha- verse 19, same chapter. For the law made nothing perfect, but the bringing in of a better hope did, by the which we draw nigh unto God. What you have now is perfect. What you had before was imperfect. You see the same thing, look at chapter 9, verse uh, Verse nine, chapter nine, verse nine, which was a figure for the time then present in which we were offered both gifts and sacrifices and those gifts and sacrifices, whatever they put on that altar, look what it says about them. They could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. Covered the sin, but with, until the death of Christ, it wasn't gone. It's an amazing thing. You see it over and over. Uh, you're in chapter nine again. Look at verse 11. But Christ being come as high priest of good things come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. That is easy to say, not of this building. We'll talk about the perfect tabernacle. We read a while ago, chapter 10, verse one, for the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of those things can never with those sacrifices, which they offered year by year, continually make the comers unto perfect. There was no perfection in that. And finally, verse 14, we read a while ago, for by one offering, he hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Is that better? Yes or no? Oh, absolutely it's better. And that's the whole message of this whole, the first part of Hebrews. Now he's going to continue. He's going to continue to talk about a better tabernacle. He's going to continue uh, to talk about uh, uh, how Christ is better than, uh, better than the Old Testament law and better than the Old Testament priesthood. He's trying to get them convinced. Now, I know you, some of you are looking at me and probably going, yeah, we get it. Move on. And I, I can move on, but you've got to understand why it was written and un- put yourself in the place of those, of those uh, New Testament Jews who had just converted from Judaism to Christianity or just been fulfilled from Judaism to Christianity. That was a struggle for them. And so when you go through this argument over and over and over, you think, why is he emphasizing this so much? Why is he saying once for all so many times? Why is he saying it's perfect? Why is he talking about the order of Melchizedek? Why is he talking about eternity? Because they've got to see that. They've got to move on. The gospel now needs to be spread to a whole world and they need to know there is a better way. Amen. Our our, our way is better. Uh, you'll see that out through the New Testament. So understand that as we go through this. So then you go down finally to the practical argument. Uh, let me just give you that real. It, go ahead and write out to the side. Uh, uh, priest, uh, priest with sin, line, a priest without sin. That's the practical argument. Your priests were sinful people. In fact, we, I mentioned a while ago uh, in, sec, in 1 Samuel, uh, you know, the sons of Samuel, if you read that story, 1 Samuel chapter 2, pretty sad story. But the bad thing is, and I think people need to understand this, doesn't matter if it's an Old Testament priest or New Testament pastor, none of us are perfect. Amen? You don't put your faith. I, I love Pastor Monty. I know some of you people really, boy, Pastor Monty is the goat. He is the guy. Bad Pastor Monty. And great. That's wonderful. I'm glad you love your pastor. But you, under, you do understand he is not perfect. And by the way, can I say this? Don't expect perfection, uh, perfection out of him. It may be his goal. It may be my goal to live a, a righteous and perfect life, but I don't attain it. 
I have, I, there's no way I would claim that. I'm married, I've been married for 47 years. Uh, there's a witness that would tell you that no, he's not perfect, not even close. And that's the whole point. That priesthood was imperfect with imperfect priests, imperfect offerings, imperfect uh, ceremonies, all just a shadow of the truth. Why would you cling to that when you now have the truth? That's Paul's argument. Dearly Father, Lord, I pray that you'll continue to do a work in our heart and life. Help us to understand how much better we have it. And Lord, because we understand that, help us to freely Tell others about our Savior. Tell others about this Messiah who was offered once, and all, once for all for the sins of all. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be better witnesses because we have a better testimony. We have a better testament. We have a better covenant. And I pray, Lord, that we'll spread that covenant, that truth throughout the world. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. Worship service will start in a little bit.